Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast, a veritable smorgasbord of analysis and insight into the world of HR. I'm Francis Churchill and I'll be your host for this episode. Coming up in the next half hour, the summer is barely finished, but the new football season is already around the corner. With that in mind, is it time for Premier League clubs to start investing in HR? Our reporter, Maggie Basker, investigates. And Tim Pointer is back for another round of Tim's Pointers. But first, it's finally been confirmed. IR35 will be rolled out to the public sector from April 2020, and all medium and large organisations will have to start assessing their contractors. But what is IR35? Who does it apply for? How do you know who's in or out? And what should you be doing about it? To get all the answers to these questions, I spoke to Matt Fryer, Group Compliance Director for Brooks and Legal. IR35 was originally introduced back in April 2000, and it was a tax avoidance measure to try and stop an employee resigning from their employed role and coming back as a contractor working through their own limited company. That practice became popular in the late 1990s because there was no employer's national insurance to pay and there's lower tax rates if you provide services through a limited company. I think the problem with the original rules is HMRC just didn't have the resource to police them correctly. Um, It's estimated there's around 500,000 personal service companies out there now um, and the existing rules in the private sector mean that the risk and the obligation for managing the, the the correct tax status sits with that individual PSC, so 500,000 companies to HMRC to police. The rule change that we're going to see in April of 2020 shifts that risk and obligation from the the personal service company right up to to the end hirer. So if you are a company that's using contractors or freelancers, it essentially changes the responsibility and puts it on you to make sure that your contractors are compliant with IR35? That's exactly right, yeah. So so organisations in the private sector now who are medium or large size, so that's businesses with uh, more than 50 employees or turnover of more than 10.2 million, will be required to identify the number of contractors that they've got and to undertake an employment status test on all of those to make sure that the correct amount of tax is being paid. The tax differentiator here is, is anything up to 25%. So it could be quite a costly thing to get wrong. In what situations could that potentially be costly for a business? Yeah, so I guess if you have currently got a workforce that includes some, some contractors, at the moment you'd just be paying them gross. You haven't got any tax risk to worry about. Now, if you undertake a, an employment status test and you find that a proportion of those should be subject to IR35, there's an anomaly in the legislation really that, that puts the obligation on, on the fee payer. So if the personal service company is directly engaged with the organisation, then the organisation would have to deduct employment taxes. If the individual is found through a recruitment business and is paid through a recruitment business, then the recruitment business has to deduct the, the, the tax. But it's still the obligation on the, the end hirer to make that status assessment. So essentially it could mean that contractors' take-home pay could be reduced by around 25%, or if actually you wanted to retain them on the same take-home pay that they enjoy now, you might have to up the contract rates. I think the other factor in this is 
contractors that are found to be within IO35 can't claim tax relief on their travel expenses, just like an employee can't. So one of the big concerns with this, and I think an unintended consequence, is that um, contractors typically travel long distances, and it's the tax relief on those expenses that they pay out of the contract rate make it viable. So there's a financial implication potentially in having to pay more for, for the resource, or there's an implication on the individual worker in terms of reduced take-home pay, but there could also be a restriction on their ability to fund their travel and accommodation for, for example, filling a, a skill shortage in an area where, where resources need to, br to brought in on a flexible basis. You should expect that once these rules come in, they're going to have to start paying more for their contractors. Potentially. This change happened in the public sector two years ago, and to be fair, the public sector didn't have the amount of time that the private sector had been given to, to prepare for this. They only had a few months to prepare, and one of the things we saw in the public sector was, was blanket bans. So public sector saying you can no longer provide services through a PSC, or actually we're going to treat you all as being subject to IR35 and, and deduct the tax. Um, now, that, that's right if, if a contractor is actually a disguised employee. Um, but if they're not, if they're a genuine contractor, then that's why I, I guess our message to the market now is to take action and make sure you're doing those proper assessments and not doing a knee-jerk blanket reaction. Because that could either result in contractors no longer wanting to work for you or result in those increased costs. Private sector businesses that we're advising now are currently going through the process of trying to understand whether IR35 applies or not to the workforce. I think once they understand that, they can start to think about the financial um, and broader business implications that this change could have. But that's a, a massive burden on businesses, isn't it? So under these new rules, an employer using contractors is going to have to evaluate every individual contractor um, based on their own relationship with the company. That's right, yeah. So, and it's actually quite difficult. So this boils down to an employment status test for all of those contractors. Um, and employment status tests are, are defined by case law that's developed over, over decades. Um, and HMRC actually struggle with applying these rules. They've had a poor track record in tax tribunals. Um, I think more, most recently we had well-publicised cases of uh, Kay Adams and Lorraine Kelly. Um, where HMRC said, actually, you, you look like you should be an employee um, of, of, of the company that you're working for. You should be paying the tax. And both of those presenters uh, won their case at tax tribunal and were able to prove that they weren't employees. So it's, it's quite a complex area of employment uh, law. And businesses are asking to, to do these assessments from a standing start, really. They've not had to consider them before. Um, and we've got roughly nine months now until the, the rules come into play. So it's, it is quite a challenge for, for business. Obviously, you hear a lot of talk about um, inside and outside IR35. Um, what's, what's the key difference? So inside IR35 means that you have a contractor providing services through a limited company whose relationship with you is one of employment. Um, and, and that's determined by applying the employment status case law. So an inside IR35 case is a case that essentially is subject to this new legislation and additional tax and NI needs to be paid. An outside IR35 case would be a, a, a limited company contractor who is genuinely found to be outside uh, of IR35 and therefore is genuinely self-employed 
and, and for that population it would be business as usual. You can continue to pay them without deduction of tax um, as long as you're comfortable that your status assessment on them has, has met the reasonable care threshold that HMRC requires. So if you're inside IR35, you're essentially taxed as an employee? Correct, yeah. Now, the sting in the tail with this change is that even though they will be taxed as an employee, they don't qualify for any employment rights or benefits. Um, so there's no allowance for pension in there. Obviously, they don't get the accumulation of, of, of rights that employees get. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a sting in the tail for contractors. And there's a, there is a little bit of concern in the market that a contractor incorrectly found to be inside IR35 by a, an employer. Um, obviously, they're going to suffer the tax hit, but they're not going to get employment rights or benefits. And there's a nervousness they, that they could make a claim for employment rights. And, and the argument would be, you've classified me as employed for tax purposes. I now think that I should be eligible for all my employment rights and benefits. So that, that's another reason for business to uh, to really think through their approach to this and, and avoid those blanket bans. And there is a, at least in the public sector, HMRC did put out um, uh, an assessment tool that um, organisations could use, but I understand it um, didn't work exactly the way that, or some people said it hasn't worked exactly the way that they wanted it to? Yes. Yeah, so this was the... Check Employment Status for Tax Tool, which is available now on HMRC's website. And it asks a series of questions that are indicative around employment status. And it gives you the output. Um, so I think the intentions there were, were well-meaning. Um, give, give businesses a free tool to use to undertake these assessments. The concern that um, lots of stakeholders have with it is it, it misses one key element of employment status case law. It just doesn't test that at all. And th there is a view that it's obviously weighted in HMRC's favour and, it, and it's going to deliver more inside IR35 than outside IR35 results. I guess the other challenge with it is, is circa 20% of, of the output is undeterminable. So the online tool can't decide and it invites you to phone HMRC to get an opinion. Um, so there's quite a bit of scepticism in the market around it, and there's also no provision in there for the I don't know answer. Some businesses are comfortable using it. I think it does come with a bit of a health warning, though, and it does run the risk of uh, putting a greater number of the, the contractor population into the disguised employee camp, which brings in the, the issues around increasing costs that, that we talked about earlier. So what should be on an employer's checklist then when they are going through whether or not their contractors fall inside or outside R35? Yeah, so I think that the process that we typically follow uh, when we're advising our clients starts with identifying the number of contractors. And that, that's actually quite difficult for some businesses. Um, so you're looking for individuals providing their services directly to you through their own personal service company. If you source that resource through a recruitment business and the recruitment business pays them, then that's a good place to start. If you're directly hiring those individuals, uh, you might want to look at your purchase ledger, speak to hiring managers, speak to the procurement function. Once you've identified the number of those contractors, it's then considering what terms are in the contract with them and also the working practices that they work under. And that's where you get your evidence from to try and make this employment status assessment. Case law has given us a, a, a decent guide to how to do that. There's three headline tests 
to consider. The first being the degree of control that the individual is under, particularly control in how they do their job or deliver the project. So a high degree of control indicates employment relationship, a low degree of control indicates self-employment. So control is the first thing to look at. The second one is this concept of personal service. So in an employment relationship, there's a named individual that has to fulfill the employment. Um, in a self-employment relationship, you've engaged a limited company, and, and quite often there's provision in the contract for that limited company to provide a substitute if the individual contractor can't, can't attend. So if it has to be that individual, that points towards employment. If there's a right of substitution in there that would be enforceable, um, that points towards self-employment. Um, there are the two, two big tests. The third one is a concept called mutuality of obligation. And this looks at whether there's an ongoing obligation on both parties to continue to offer and accept work. So the way that you typically see that is um, if, it's a, if it's a defined project, a defined deliverable with an end date, and then the contractor either goes and finds another piece of work somewhere else or is re-engaged under a new project, that indicates a lack of these mutual obligations. If it's an open-ended contract and the individual is asked to do numerous tasks within the contract, that starts to look a bit more like employment. The key thing with this legislation is it's asking end hirers to apply those tests and when applying those tests it's asking them to take reasonable care in doing so. Now they haven't clearly defined what reasonable care means, we're hoping there's going to be some guidance on that, but, but my view is that HMRC will look at the size of the business, if the business has got significant human resources significant financial resources, they'll expect them to have really put some time, effort and, and cost into getting this right. Um, so HMRC are really asking businesses to, to take this seriously and do it properly. The big risk is they, they go through this process and they fail to meet that reasonable care threshold. And if that happens, um, HMRC will seek tax and national insurance from, from the, the business for any contractors that they continue to pay gross that they assess as being outside of IL-35. Now, the natural reaction to that is, well, let's not do anything. Let's just say we're not going to work with PSCs anymore. Um, and if you're adamant you want to work through your own limited company, we'll pay you after deduction of tax, because that does eliminate the tax risk entirely. So, And that was the approach that, that, that some public sector organisations took. Um, now, that, that will obviously not be good news to the contractors, because they may suffer a take-home pay reduction and no longer get tax relief on their expenses, so they might not be able to afford to, to travel long distances to fulfil the contract. Uh, so that could mean you have to increase your pay rates to compensate them, to get them to stay. You might have issues with uh, attracting new contractors and retaining existing contractors. We saw the NHS and Transport for London in particular have big issues because that's the approach that they originally took. Um, and it's well publicised that there was a, a project to Im improve the Bakerloo line around uh, spring, summer of 2017. And that project was delayed by four months and, and costs escalated purely as a result of TfL taking an almost blanket ban approach to, to this IL35 change. So as well as looking at their existing workforce and, and starting to make those decisions about who falls in and outside of IL35, have you seen companies sort of taking a broader look at how they source their skills um, and labour because of these rules? Yeah, sure. So I think there's, uh, 
the, the wider project here is actually sitting back and thinking, where do we really need flexible, skilled resources? So they will be our contract pool. Uh, some businesses are finding that they've had contractors there for 10, 15, 20 years doing the same job, and actually it is now time to take stock and think we should really employ these people. Um, so the challenge here is, is trying to trying to mitigate those risks that we spoke about earlier with minimal business impact, but also retaining flexibility to allow businesses to scale up and scale down as and when needed. Clearly, as soon as you employ an individual, um, it takes you outside the scope of this new legislation, but it also means that you know that's resource that you own now, so you need to uh, think carefully if you need to scale up or down. Clearly, the, one of the big benefits of using contractors is you can turn the resource off, you can turn the resource back on again when, when you need it. So there is a bit of a strategic thinking for um, HR functions, I think, around where do we really need this flexible talent pool um, and actually should some of those be employees. I think the recruitment sector um, is rising to the challenge here. So if, if, you, if you use recruitment businesses to find flexible labour, um, they are now... Um, offering help and support into end hires to try and help them to manage the risk. Um, but I think the big challenge in all of this is making those individual status assessments. Um, and that's where the whole of the private sector, including many large recruitment businesses, just don't have the internal resource. Um, so do you use the HMRC online tool um, or do you go and speak to a legal advisor to get, get some advice? I think that's another thing to think about pretty quickly. Where I grew up, in the US, football means men in helmets and giant shoulder pads. But in the UK, it's about the Premier League. And the good news, for fans at least, is that the new season starts in just a matter of weeks. Football is a multi-billion pound industry played by millionaires. But despite the high stakes involved, clubs have been surprisingly slow to employ fully-fledged HR departments. And even when they do, they've been relatively conservative in how they deploy the function. I spoke to Kim Healy, People Director at Everton, to find out why their one club, at least, which sees the value in investing in people. I started my football career in 2004, mm. which means I'm coming into my 16th season now. And I've worked at three clubs. So the first two clubs, HR wasn't as recognized as it is now. Although the football clubs were a business, and they very much concentrated purely on the football side, the business side was left to do whatever they could do. Um, when I joined the, f the first two clubs I worked for, I was actually in a standalone role. Mm. And you're looking at about 250 employees, about 800 casual on top of 250 permanent employees. And the main challenge was trying to get football staff um, engaged in HR policies and procedures. So rather than hear that, you know what, Kim, it's just football, they, they actually realised that they could be standing in front of the employment tribunal and there were certain laws and regulations and procedures that they had to follow. Now, within football, the perception may be seen as though HR professionals also deal with playing staff and managers 
the playing staff are actually dealt with either a football secretary, a director of football operations, or a football director. And they have very clear rules and guidelines and contracts and um, different aspects that they have to adhere to for the FA rules and regulations and Premier League rules and regulations. So the HR function very much concentrates on the non-business side of the organisation. HR has become a critical influence in football clubs. I mean, if I look at my team now, I am responsible for safeguarding, which I have a team of three full-timers that's looking after um, children and vulnerable adults. So we have young people who are playing for us. We have supporters and participants that we deal with. Um, I have an, an HR team of 10 people covers people's services because we've changed perception as well we're not an hr department anymore we're now a people department which goes hand in hand with being the people's club as we're everton um so i have a full team of about 10 we have a people services department i have four um people who are, are multi-sited because we are a multi-site organization we have a stadium we have a, a head office base of the Royal Liver Buildings in Liverpool, we have a training centre, we have a free school, and we have Everton in the Community, which is a charity. And then I also have introduced um, a head of reward and engagement for our teams as well, which also looks at diversity and inclusion. So we've, we've grown quite tremendously, really, over the last four years since I've been at the club to incorporate more people benefits more of a people's strategy because we, we are a business and we want to be, attract and retain the best talent that we can possibly do. Our headcount has actually doubled in size over the last, I'd say, three years from 250 permanent employees to 500. And in doing that, we've had to reach out um, to be the best. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if you're an Evertonian, you'll know that our motto is nil status nisi optimum, which is only the best is good enough. And what we want to do is attract staff from all different wakes of life, uh, really open up our equality and, and diversity and inclusion program, which we've rebranded re to all together now, um, to make sure that we're reaching everyone we need to. We do have a lot of supporters here, but we have supporters of football in general and other sports in general. But to have our policies and procedures in place, those staff know where the boundaries are. If I look at it from an employer point of view, I would say years ago, um, football clubs would take on people who were supporters because it's a die-hard attitude. You know, you'd have very limited staff at your football club and one person would be probably doing 10 people's jobs because they just wanted to be part of the club. They didn't want to be taken away from that. And the more they were involved, the better it was for them because they... In the community, they will be seen as being part of that brand and that club. Whereas, you know, we, we've set up expectations of what's expected as a business because we are a business. So we do have to be um, objective when we are looking at uh, working with our staff, whether they're diehard fans or not. We've actually incorporated values into our ethos, which we have as a club. And we did those with working with our senior management team, with our staff, with our supporters and our community. And those values cover determination, uh, ambition, authenticity. And one of our very, very strong values is our family value. And with that, we've, have, we've now got behaviours that actually 
are aligned to those values and that we expect our staff to work alongside. So even though you may be a diehard supporter, there's still the boundaries and expectations of what we require as a business and a very successful football club. Everton might well take the title when it comes to HR and football, but even at Goodison Park, the manager, Marco Silva, won't be taking part in a 360-degree appraisal. Clubs have kept formal management and development processes well away from the playing side of their operations, because football isn't like a normal employment relationship. Players effectively sign away their freedom to work where they want, when they want, in return for untold riches. They are both employees and transferable assets. But there have been a number of legal cases in recent years that suggest some clubs are playing fast and loose with employment law. And plenty of experts believe football is crying out for a more empowered HR function. We spoke to Alan Price, CEO of Bright HR, an HR expert, about what that might mean in practice. If you take a step back from the industry and you look at it in its component parts in terms of people, you've got an industry that employs a lot of seasonal workers, mm-hmm. a lot of people on fixed time contracts, a number of people on contracts for services or, or very long form express legalistic employment contracts with restraints of trade, their penalty clauses, bonuses and such like. And forget in the industry, for example, but if you just write that down on a piece of paper and say seasonal workers, volunteers, variety of functions from back office support staff to coaching staff, then to very complex contractual agreements between, well, in effect, workers or employees, and then penalties and industry-specific tribunals to deal with certain um, issues straight away without knowing the industry type. And you see that on a piece of paper, Maggie, Mm. A normal individual would be thinking, or a business owner or a CEO would be thinking, where's HR? I need mm. HR in this room. But this big list of seasonal workers, transactional workers, voluntary workers, people who are here for fixed-term contracts, I need to think about where I'm going to get them from and how am I going to onboard them, how am I going to deal with them, how am I going to manage them, how am I, how am I going to give them feedback. And I think that's the challenge in football. Football doesn't see itself as a traditional industry. It sees itself, as you said, this seasonal based activity that is predominantly supported by mainstream lawyers who deal with it as contract law and contract law will have been the case a hundred years ago when dealing with an employment relationship or go back even further to master and servant relationships and i think football has to evolve you can put the footballers to one side for a moment and say they've got a contract for a fixed duration with very expressed terms but again that can go wrong um, but then you've got the football managers, you've got coaching staff, you've got support staff, you've got admin, the ground staff, the seasonal workers, the volunteers, the people that come on site that you're responsible for, health and safety. So the role of HR has never been more important. And you've only got to look at the last 10, 20 years in football where there's been massive press coverage of disputes between managers, coaching staff, backroom staff, because HR haven't necessarily been either at the board table or at the forefront of these issues when they've arisen. So the big kickoff is just weeks away, but when you're watching Manchester City and Liverpool fight it out for the ultimate prize this season, spare a thought for the huge teamers behind the scenes that make it all possible, and ask yourself how you'd handle a grievance from an employee who's worth £100 million. 
As fans of the podcast might know, the show's esteemed former host Lauren Brown has left people management for Pastures New. But before she went, Lauren recorded one last episode of Tim's Pointers. So Tim, I've got a little bit of a kind of love triangle here for you. A bit Have unusual, a bit of an unusual one, yeah. I'm not that kind of agony uncle. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to be. It is HR involved, I promise. <laughs> this is still an HR point here. So this person has said, I'm an HR manager and I know some of my colleagues who I'm good friends with are romantically involved. It's getting serious. Almost everyone in the office now knows. And I know they should formally disclose this information to the business. I feel under pressure to do so, but also don't want to betray the relationship I have with them. What should I do? Mm, how interesting. Again, fascinating use of words there. Disclosure and pressure. Oh, how very interesting. So now, obviously, some organisations will have a relationships at work policy. And many do not. So without the context, it'll be interesting to know where that pressure comes from. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this individual, there's a reason why they're feeling that pressure to disclose. So the, this might be an organisation in which there is a relationships at work policy in which the individuals do have to disclose that. Is that a fair assumption, do you think? Well, I think, again, back to the wording they've said, I know they should formally disclose this to the business, which suggested to me that there is a policy that they're aware of that's kind of causing that pressure. Mm. And it's difficult because they're our correspondents' friends. What I would suggest is that the pressure is not on you to disclose this information to the business. Uh, in, it is solely with the individuals themselves who are in the relationship. They need to follow the, the company policies of which they will be aware through their training and induction process and everything else and if they're not yes it is your responsibility to make sure that they're aware of it i would suggest that the pressure sits with them and not with you to make this disclosure on their behalf it's very difficult to balance personal and professional relationships but understanding the line for you as an individual is really important for you to say, if this was ever raised to you, I made sure that they were aware of the policy, makes it really clear where the accountability sits. It's not up to you to fix this. And there's a nice tone of friendship and support there, isn't there? They clearly want what's best for these two colleagues. And I think that's part of where the pressure's coming from as well, right? It seems like they just want to make sure that they're going to be all good. And it feels like there might also be an anticipation that this needs to be formally mentioned because, quotes, everybody knows about it. So I wonder who the audience is that our correspondent's concerned about. Is it, you know, senior management, whoever that is? But just making sure that we have the, the right level of awareness. But if everyone knows, then everyone knows, right? <laughs> it's a funny one. It's... It, it's um, I think this is a great example of how contextual organisations are. In some organisations, this would be such a, a high priority. And in some, no one would care. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Our thanks go out to Matt Fryer, Alan Price, Kim Healy, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud, or go to our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Please do rate us and leave a comment. We'd love to hear what you think. My name is Francis Churchill. Our other reporter was Maggie Basker. The show was produced by Emma Corsham from Rethink Audio. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next month. Hold up. 